0: This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. All right, welcome back, four zero three nine seven four talk. As we saw this week, you know the the habit of giving really, really obvious uh, and ridiculous names to pieces of legislation is uh, not unique to any one party. So this week here in Alberta brought us. The introduction of the Fair and Family Friendly Workplaces Act. Well, who would be opposed to Fair Workplaces? Who would be opposed to family friendly workplaces? Who could possibly oppose this legislation? Uh, it's a major overhaul of Alberta's workplace rules. And it's been, you know, a few decades since these rules have been changed and updated. So maybe maybe they were overdue for a change. But I think if the NDP were really honest about Wanting to, to make changes that make sense, we would have taken a lot longer to review this. Other provinces that have gone through this process have taken you know up to two years to spend the time consulting and reviewing all of this. Here in Alberta, it was a much more compressed time frame. This was really rushed. And I don't think that was by accident. So we've got changes that apply to non-union workers. We've got all kinds of changes that apply to unions and labor relations on that side. So the government's really flame, framing this in flowery terms, right? That it's about fair workplaces, family-friendly workplaces. Why should someone get fired from a job because they've got a sick child, etc.? You know, and like, people agree with that. And people want to be Compassionate. The idea that somebody would lose their job because they got to tend to a sick child or loved one—that doesn't seem fair. So it makes sense that the government's framing it that way. But I think when you start to peel back the layers of this, there there is some cause for concerns. I want to go through some of what's changing and some of what we need to know uh, about these changes. Very pleased to welcome the program here today, Thomas Ross, who is a partner with McLennan Ross LLP, a labor lawyer. Uh, Tom, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Uh, it just uh, a thought from you on the process leading up to this legislation. As I mentioned, it seemed as though it was a really compressed time frame. What's your sense?
1: Oh, it, there's no doubt it was a compressed time frame, and that's something that industry had raised as a concern with government for some period of time. As you know, in uh, you know, Ontario, they have taken about two years to go through through their process, and so that is a concern. Uh, it's a concern not only in terms of getting appropriate feedback and allowing you know, all Albertans, lots of people, uh, you know, who have knowledge of these areas need time to address it, but anyone who, who may not really fully understand the issues needs a bunch of time to understand it. And then further, there's there's time required to to uh, adapt and understand what the changes are going to be required to, uh, to address the new legislation. So th- that's been a concern. And when you look at the legislation that came out, which was something like 252 pages, there's just no way that that was done over the the last couple of weeks. Uh, It would seem that this has been something in the works for a long time.
0: And do you think, by the way, I mean, the opposition suggested that this could have actually been two separate pieces of legislation. Uh, Do do you think that might have made more sense?
1: Well, there's no question that those are two very different concepts that are addressed in this act. Uh, The Employment Standards Code changes, which affect all employees, but more so in respect to non-unionized employment and the Labor Relations Code, which only applies to unionized employment or employees who are seeking to become unionized. And so they're very different. And and yeah, there is some concern that trying to tackle both of these pieces of legislation at the same time kind of waters down the ability to effectively address, critique, examine uh, all, all of the changes that uh, that are being made. And and this is being pushed through the legislature before it concludes this term, which I gather is in just over a week. So right, which is crazy. Was, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very fast.
0: Well, yeah, you talk about the very short consultation. Now we're going to get virtually no debate and scrutiny of this, so that, that's unfortunate. Just a thought from you, too, on on the, the whole concept of unpaid leaves of absence, because, you know, there, there's one case in particular that the NDP have cited, this woman whose son had leukemia. She lost her job, an awful situation, right? So there's a need maybe to address compassionate care, but at what cost, right? And what are the situations where maybe it, it's going too far?
1: Yeah, there's an expression we have in the law, which is that bad facts make for bad law. You, you don't want to address rules that apply to everyone based on you know, particularly unusual or, or difficult circumstances. You're right. often, you often end up with something that uh, just isn't really workable going forward. I, I think that some of the leaves that are being addressed here, yeah, that there would be conceptual support for them. How they apply is is certainly one issue. For instance, even in in the compassionate care leave, uh, you, you might accept that that's a, a perfectly fine leave to have. But for instance, one of the other changes is that we're reducing the period of notice to return to work from two weeks to now two days. And you know that's just an example of a practical problem that the employer is faced with. And they, they may say, Hey, it's no problem to have this leave. We'll we'll help you out with this leave, but you know we 're going to have to have someone fill in in the meantime, and then you know if you want to come back on two days notice, what do we do with the other person who we have filling in? These are difficult situations, and particularly if it 's a a small organization. This legislation applies to to every employer in the province, no matter how big or small, no matter what their resources and and I think, you know, it's one thing to take one aspect of the legislation and, and assess whether it's legitimate or, or valid or not. But when you look at everything that's being added here, it just is a, a large burden that is being piled on to employers, particularly at a time when, when they can least afford it.
0: Well, that's the thing, right? Nothing exists in a vacuum. So any new reality that employers got to deal with, that's added to the pile of everything else they're dealing with. Trade. Yeah. Well, Tom, stand by if you can. I want to take a break here. We'll come back. And I want to get into the Labor Relations Code side of this and what's changing as it pertains to unionization, uh, the rules around getting certified, the rules around voting, the rules around secret ballots, and uh, how it really seems to shift the burden in favor of unions. Tom Ross is uh, our guest, a partner with McLennan Ross LLP. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We're back after this. Uh, welcome back. Uh, talking about the Fair and Family-Friendly Workplaces Act. What a name. That's the uh, name the NDP have given to their uh, overhaul of uh, labor relations in this province. Now, again, there's there's two sides of it, of course. It's a big piece of legislation. I do want to focus a bit more on the changes to the Labor Relations Code. we got with us uh, Thomas Ross, partner at McLennan Ross LLP. So in terms of the changes that are coming to... In particular the unionization process uh there was some concern that maybe secret ballots on these certification votes would be eliminated altogether it's not quite the case but still i think there's cause for concern there what's changing
1: well right now you first of all have to have a 40 percent threshold uh, amongst an employee group in order to get to a vote and then you have to win the majority of those who vote in in the new system under this new legislation that part will still apply, except that if you have more than 65% of employees either signed up on a petition or who are members of the union or apply to be members, then they get certified without any vote, without any right for the employees to to say uh, whether they actually want uh, a union or not in the protection of a secret ballot. And, you know, I was thinking about this. It's, it's kind of the same kind of situation where, well, if you had one political party polling it at above 65%, uh, would any of us think it's reasonable to say, okay, well, we can just acclaim them into a position rather than having a vote? Well, Votes obviously have have purpose and meaning, and it's no difference in respect to a union election than any other.
0: Right. So signing a petition is not necessarily voting, but in this instance, it basically is if you can get to that threshold. So people are Being forced to cast a vote very publicly and openly by either signing the petition or not signing it.
1: Well, that's the that's the problem exactly. Rob is that people often sign for lots of different reasons. One, because they don't know what they're signing to. Because they've been told certain things that may or may not be accurate. Three, because they just don't uh, want to deal with peer pressure and and want to avoid uh, someone, you know, looking at them uh, and asking why they're not signing a card. Uh, and, And. and people change their minds. Uh, people get information from different sources before they vote that that change their mind. And in the new system as well, we're going to have right now, it's it's a three-month process normally to to work up to uh, an organizing campaign now that's going to be extended over six months. I mean, think of the elections we've had in the last little while. How many people have not changed their minds over the course of six months?
0: So they would have six months to gather those names.
1: The other thing that's important to understand, Rob, is that there, there are lots of situations where we're Employees are members of more than one union. They might, in fact, be represented by a union that they like and is representing their employer, but they're also a member of of another union. This is very common in construction and maintenance industries. People are represented by lots of different unions, and, and in this new regime, the fact that you're a member of a union is, is as well taken as an automatic vote for them. When in fact. Uh, You might support them at some employers, but not at the current employer you have because you like the other union or you may want no union at all.
0: Well, let me ask you this, because there was a recent Supreme Court ruling uh, that that has a big impact on collective bargaining, et cetera. And I know the the NDP are pointing to that and saying, you know, in some of these areas, we have to live up to what the court said. Are, Are they being disingenuous? How relevant is that that court ruling here?
1: Well, this change uh, addresses many different aspects of the code. Uh, the, the part that you're talking about uh, relates to a very limited uh, area, which was the right to strike, or whether that's a constitutionally protected right. And you may recall from last year that the essential services legislation that we brought in was very much... Uh, trumpeted by the government that we have to do this because the Supreme Court has said that the right to strike is is uh sacrosanct. Mm-hmm. And, and and now in this new legislation that we see, uh which doesn't apply to essential services, it applies to pretty much every other service that's that's not essential, uh they're saying on a first contract situation we're, in fact, going to allow an arbitration at a very early period in the process, and, and an arbitrator is going to tell the parties what the agreement is going to be. So, yeah, certainly a lot of people are saying that that's, uh, that's hypocritical, given the position the government took last year.
0: What about those who say that, uh, you know, people have a right to, to organize as a union, and uh, if, if employers treat their workers fairly, maybe there'd be no need for a union in the first place? But, because, I mean, this does put a lot of burden on employers.
1: Yeah, without question. I mean, that's certainly one of the things we tell employers: the best way to avoid a union, if you don't want one, is to be a good employer. Uh, but, but really, what we're dealing with here, I would say, is is more of a philosophical divide. Uh, we have a government that has the view that things that help unions will therefore be automatically good for Albertans generally, and I understand that viewpoint. I don't, I don't particularly agree with it. And if you look at Alberta's more recent history, we're we're frankly, lower in the unionization content across the country, and yet we've led the, the nation in terms of employment and wages and income. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at all of the changes that we see in this, the, the, the labor code changes, they really are designed to be, a, I would say, rather than a family-friendly workplaces act, a union-friendly workplaces act. And, and if you believe that helping unions helps uh, Albertans, then that's the basis of, uh, of the rationale, but there's you know, plenty of argument otherwise.
0: A question for you: Going back to the unionization process, so they have six months to, to gather names on a petition. If sixty-five percent sign up, then it becomes automatic. If they fail to do so in the six months, how long until they can try again?
1: Yeah, it's a really a similar period. That uh, within a matter of months, you, you can be back at that process again.
0: So it's, all, it's almost can be essentially an almost constant process.
1: It can be. In some, in some workplaces, that's been the case uh, for a long time, where uh, a failed application gets followed up by another one. But that, that part is not a, a big difference from the current code. Uh, you, you can reapply for certification after a failed uh, vote uh, in three months right now under the current legislation. Uh, but at least you have the security that that you've had a vote, and employees have freely expressed their wishes. Uh, the, the bigger concern, of course, is that they're they're not going to have that because, you know, in many cases, there isn't going to be a vote. Do you see any of this being open to a court challenge? I think it's uh, it's early to tell. Certainly, there are a number of issues that uh, I, I think give that possibility. Yes. Uh, but uh, I think everyone is still sorting through this, and, yeah. and we'll have to see the uh, the legislation uh, put into effect.
0: All right. Well, we'll leave it there. More at MRoss.com. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate the insight on this. Thank you, Rob. All right. Take care. That's uh, Thomas Ross, uh, partner at McClellan, uh, McLennan Ross. I should say LLP. My name is Rob Breckenridge. 403-974-TALK is the way to reach us. 974-8255. We're back after this.